Hello and welcome to March 2021. Good grief, I didn't expect my hiatus to go for two full months, but I refuse to feel bad about that because as I traipse through the world of my psychology postgrad and the brain-based communications work I do in my other life, one thing I know for sure is this. 2020 may as well have been a grizzly bear chasing us. On a primal level, our brains treat all stresses the same, whether they're physical, mental or emotional, real, imagined or even trauma remembered. So, am I metaphorically puffed out, sweating bullets, trying to catch my breath? Are all of us perhaps? Yeah, and that's fine. Recovery from that is a process and it would be even if we were just dealing with the economic questions that COVID-19 left us with. Or the questions over whether we needed to mask up, lock down again, or whether that sniffle is more than a sniffle. But some of us faced all other things last year as well. Some of us faced relationship breakdowns. Some of us faced the beginnings of deconstruction as we finally had the space to wonder about whether church or doctrine or whatever it was, was a true representation of us or God or the divine. Some of us had relationships shift or reveal themselves as toxic. Some of us lived with partners who were a danger to us. Some of us faced losses of loved ones. Hell, some of us homeschooled and boy, that's not a walk in the park. With billions of people on the face of the planet, it seems like 2020 had a special way of testing all of us. And that takes time to recover from. Therefore, it's not by accident that Jess Hugenberg from Welcome to the Process is here on the podcast to kick off the year. Jess first sparked my attention back when a leader of the Bethel Church lost her precious daughter, Olive. During this time, I watched horrified, empathetic, and an understanding as grief met with the faith movement and turned into this refusal to accept Olive's death. I watched as thousands of people rallied in prayer meetings and worship sessions intended to wake up the toddler. I was horrified. I could understand how it could happen. I didn't quite know what to say about it. Because where is the line between faith and denial? And how do churches handle trauma when we seem more equipped to deny it? Jess is a trauma therapist. And she's also a person deeply and personally acquainted with the subject matter. As she launched her new Instagram brand, which has grown quickly, two of the topics she took on were spiritual bypassing and trauma-informed churches. So obviously, I had to talk to her. These are important topics. My deepest hope as we progress into a post-COVID world is that the church looks at the challenges it's faced with, the scandals, the abuse, the trauma within its ranks, and re-evaluates. I hope, in a way, church deconstructs and from these broken pieces we will make a beautiful mosaic that serves the world the way it's supposed to. I'm idealistic like that. I'm also idealistic about rescuing the sound on this podcast because uh, it's stuffed up again and it's possibly an indication that I need to change my cloud software. So I'm going to do that, but I've done the best I can with this and, uh, and rescued it. Um, the content is great though and I really hope you enjoy it. But anyway... Here we are, idealistic, recovering, and all the things we are after last year, realising that some things take time. And here is Jess saying, welcome to the process. I hope you enjoy this podcast. I'm Kit Kennedy, and this is Unchurchable. I first saw Jess Hugenberg on uh, Instagram. I think it was in the wake of a a Bethel scandal when they were trying to resurrect a little baby who had sadly passed. And I saw in Jess's page sympathy, but also a bit of 
trauma-informed kind of approach and I thought oh this is interesting uh, since then she's done a few really interesting things one called I'll do it so you don't have to where she's kind of pulled apart a bit of uh, you know theology when it comes to big things that have happened in the church in America and more recently a new Instagram page called welcome to the process this is a lot I love your content but how did you end up in this space Jess <laughs> That is a question I have been asking myself a lot the last few weeks. Um, it's really just been maybe three weeks since I've started posting again on Instagram. Um, but it's really just come from my own journey of like healing from my own trauma and trying to reconcile my own personal faith with what I also believe about like psychology and trauma-informed care and recognizing like a lot of harm that's been done in my life and in my friends and my family. And realizing like we can do better and we really have to. Yeah. Now this is, um, I mean, this is a really interesting thing to kind of unpack as the phenomenon of deconstruction kind of sweeps across the evangelical church and the people who leave it. Um, there's a lot of people who don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as we say in Australia. I don't know whether you've heard that. <laughs> we do, of, we do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you do. Um, yeah, we, we don't want to throw out the, the, ba the baby with the bathwater, but how do you kind of unpack it all? So, uh, so yeah, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, do you study psychology, like, or is this your practice? Like, yeah. I have um, a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling, and I'm currently yeah. um, a trauma therapist. I work for our state department of mental health. Oh, wow. You have a state department of mental health. That's amazing. What kind of work does that do? So in my position, I work with children and families in the community. So that's my day job, working with kids yeah. and families that are at risk for the children being removed either from child protective services or into like residential treatment, which I also used to work in with kids that had more severe trauma or mental health needs. Goodness gracious. That's a, that's a really important job. I used to do a little bit of work with um, child protection over here um, not in that kind of capacity so you're kind of you're doing this really intense job at home and then you're coming back and caring for the Christian population that's been traumatized by church um, through the work that you do online um, that that is a calling isn't it it's it's a big job <laughs> um, and you'll notice that I laugh when I shouldn't because um yeah, I don't know. If you don't laugh, you'll cry sometimes, don't you? Um, now, you posted on something called spiritual bypassing, which really piqued my interest. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what that is um, and, and how people might notice it in their own life. Um, what is spiritual bypassing? Spiritual bypassing was a term coined first by a psychologist named John Wellwood. Mm -hmm. And I, be I believe he was also um, a practicing Buddhist. And so he, he did come from like a religious background mm -hmm. as he um, identified this term, but he defined it as using spiritual beliefs and ideas to avoid or sidestep emotional issues, psychological wounds, and unfinished developmental tasks. That's like his Ooh. verbatim definition um, and I unpack that a little bit just kind of explaining like mm. what that might look like if that's if you want me to go into yeah. that okay yeah I'd love that yeah. yeah so I come from the position that these spiritual beliefs and ideas aren't inherently wrong I think that spirituality can be really enriching and give people a sense of purpose and actually be a resilience factor that's something that we look at in treating trauma yeah. like what are people's resilience factors what helps them to overcome and find 
post-traumatic growth versus post-traumatic Ooh. stress. Um, right. Yeah, but, that's interesting. Yeah, and they become they become bypassing or even abusive when they're used to like undermine or devalue people's like very human experiences. It's like we prioritize the spiritual aspect of self versus our our human aspects. And those <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I think we do that we do that a lot in the church. Yes. Now the the first place that my mind goes to, I think is fairly early on before I recognized that I was deconstructing, the the place for the emotion of anger was mm-hmm. one that I had to really wrestle with because as a good Christian woman, um, anger wasn't really an emotion that I felt um, permitted to experience or express. So like, you know, I'll just give it to God or just trust Jesus or, you know, don't get bitter or the foolish things of the world are used to confound the wise. Like all these kind of throwaway lines. Is that kind of part of spiritual bypassing when we're told to kind of bench that emotion and, you know, just have faith or just trust Jesus? Like, yeah, what is the line between healthy spirituality and spiritual bypassing in those sorts of scenarios? I think you're exactly on point that those are definitely examples of spiritual bypassing. Um, and I'll speak to that first and then get to that other question about like, what is that line? Um, but I've noticed just as I have done my own like study and research into like spiritual bypassing that the kind of the common threads, you know, whether that's in Christianity or, you know, in another worldview, even people that would identify as, you know, atheist or agnostic, Mm -hmm. you know, there is this, um, the common threads are kind of like, you have like forgiveness and toxic positivity, that anger phobia that you mentioned, um, like ideas on suffering and prosperity. And and you can find these, like you call them throwaway terms and just about everywhere. I think that's like, if it can, once you start Mm. seeing it, it's kind of hard to unsee. Um, Yes. (laughs) um, That line though, of like what is healthy spirituality and what is like spiritual bypassing. um, I, I don't know that I have a good definition or exactly know where to draw that line. I think it really just comes mm-hmm. down to, are you, are you trying to mm, be less human? I have kind of identified like increasing emotional intelligence and spiritual integrity are really key to overcoming spiritual bypassing or not doing that in our own lives. Cause it's certainly something I've been a victim of, I feel like, but it's also yeah. something that I have, you know, perpetrated, not to use that kind of language, but it's something that we all do <laughs> yeah. and we all receive. Um, it's, it's, it gets easy. I get, def- I can notice my defenses coming up like, Oh, that's not something that I do. But I know even now as I've done my own work that it still comes up because those ideas get ingrained in us throughout our, um, spiritual learning or however that may look in our lives. Um, they're, they're ideas that we really have to spend a lot of time yeah. untangling. That is a, a really uh, interesting thing that you raise there because if you're part of the ecosystem at church, then um, often, um, uh, like often you've done some of the things that you later recognize as being traumatic. Yeah. <laughs> um, I certainly have wrestled with that a lot, um, being an ex-evangelical. Um, I, and I, I take it from your language that you're quite familiar with. Um, you've obviously been in church a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And like, 
I find that often people are well-intentioned when they engage in these practices that effectively shut off our emotional processing or our cognitive processing of things that have happened to us. Um, So I guess when we sit in this space of recognising, oh, that spiritual bypassing, oh, that's happened to me, oh, I've done that to other people, um, that can that can be a bit of an interesting one to wrestle with, can't it? So how do you how do you work through that, or how do you help people work through um, the burden of having? Hey, there's the fur baby. There he is. He was doing so good. I'm gonna ignore him, and hopefully, my neighbors like the same as yours. So hopefully, that's all that was. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, yeah, how do you kind of help people process, oh, uh, you know, that, that realisation that they've been part of spiritual bypassing as well as being victims of it? I find that really kind of needs to be individualised um, because yeah. everyone's coming from their own their own journey, their own experiences. And, mm. and like you mentioned, oftentimes it really is well-intentioned. Um, I think it comes from a place of wanting people to experience the happiness and the joy that a lot of times churches will make it seem like Christianity promises. Like if you, if you convert, then your life is going to get so much better. And I think there's a lot of earnestness and that they, they believe that. And then when our, when our experiences aren't quite congruent with this image that we've been sold, we will do anything to kind of keep our worldview intact. You know, we, we will, excuse things and we will try to find um, find a way to make make the pattern fit yes make the pattern fit now from a psychology or kind of psychological perspective this is the thing that we do to keep ourselves mentally and emotionally safe isn't it we we try to make the pattern fit we try to make things okay we try to kind of make ourselves feel okay so that we don't have to confront any beliefs or behaviors or family systems or things like that and people often do that in the more subtle traumas like if you're not dealing with you know having witnessed say a car crash for example and you're you're dealing with like church-based trauma you try to make it okay um, in a lot of ways and that's what makes deconstruction so difficult is we come to a realization that it's not okay Um, so this is a normal psychological process isn't it when we we so how do we then go okay right, no, no, we need to, like, I guess what I'm asking is, that was a horrible mess of a question, I'm going to edit that. <laughs> but, um, how, like, this is a part of learning healthy emotional processing, isn't it? And sometimes we haven't learned that um, as humans. Um, so churches, I guess, are not any difference in, in that way. Um, how do we learn these healthy ways of processing? Well, I'm a big proponent of therapy. I think everyone can benefit from therapy if they have the access to that. Um, And you're exactly right. It's just, it is a defense mechanism. It's a way of protecting ourselves from those uncomfortable emotions or experiences or reality. Um, A lot of times spirituality isn't grounded in reality and I'm not quite sure that they can be. Um, yeah, 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 but yeah. <laughs> the, like the primary reasons that we spiritually bypass, we have, I think we have more our well-intentioned ones of like, we're afraid of uncomfortable emotions, of setting boundaries, of having those difficult conversations. Um, yes, I think yes. we, we also use our spirituality or our religion to mask maybe our own securities and flaws, um, or our own yes. like poor self-esteem. And even like I have 
kind of been reflecting more on how our attachment style affects how we relate to God um, and how oh, that's interesting. spiritual bypassing can show up in that way. Um, I think those are more of our like, oh, I saw, sorry, the other one that I was thinking of, um, I'm a little ADHD, was that we also have a limited understanding of like scripture in its original context. Like a lot of yes. the, like the, the cliche, like Christian terms are, that people will say, oh yeah, that's in the Bible. It's really not. And it's just invalidating someone's experience. Um, I think those, yes. you know, for each person you have to kind of see which one of those reasons is at play um, to kind of personalize, like, I don't know helping them if they want that help to um, kind of overcome these spiritual bypasses and yeah yes now it's it's really interesting the thing that you raised about therapy I too am a huge proponent of therapy um, and a question that I get asked a lot is oh I'm a Christian should I only go to a Christian counselor um, because they'll counsel me according to my my faith um, I often say to people no you should go to a good counselor a good psychologist who can ask you what your goals are and counsel you towards those goals. What do you, what, how would you answer that same question? I Should love that question. Pay? Yeah, go for it. Sorry, I did not mean to cut you off. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, this is the, it's the first interview for the year and I feel like I'm warming up into it. I forgot to ask you just random interesting things about yourself or what it's like being an American this week, but we'll circle back to that. Okay. Should Christians only go to Christian counsellors? <laughs> I love that question and I personally think no. I, I don't see any value or any benefit in that because a good counsellor should be able to suspend their own belief system and help you mm -hmm. process what is your own um, belief system if you want to incorporate your spirituality into that. Um, I, yep. I have had two phenomenal uh, therapists over the last like five years and neither one of them identified as Christian. Honestly, I mean, maybe, mm -hmm. they, maybe they did. They never said. Um, they weren't advertised as Christian therapists. And yep. Um, yep. it was helpful for me because I would present like beliefs I had about myself or the world, especially as it related to like my trauma. And they would just look at me like, where mm. did that come from? And I'm like, well, in the church or like in my faith. <laughs> and it was helpful because I had yeah. to unpack like, do I, do I agree with that? Do I believe that? Is that congruent with my own, my own experience and my faith? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it was really beneficial to not. Um, but there, there are good Christian therapists. There are bad ones. There are, you know, yeah. good. Yeah secular therapists and there are bad ones um, I think yes exactly yeah find, mm. finding someone that respects your beliefs and is able to meet you where you are is the most important aspect yeah absolutely and often you can kind of tell from the first session um, whether that's whether that's going to happen um, I think I think my therapist is fantastic but it took a bit of took a bit of searching to find her and at the time I was living two and a half hours away from our state capital um, and coronavirus hadn't hit, so they weren't doing telehealth appointments where you could kind of Skype in. Um, so it meant a full day's drive, and it meant paying more than than it would than I normally would in my hometown. But she was informed on the things that I needed her to be informed on. So I was never fronting up to a counselling session, having to explain 
myself or what theories or what kind of influences <laughs> had contributed to where I was. So, so you know, so sometimes it's, it's worth really looking around for a therapist that's um, going to fit your shopping list, I think. Um, now, I suppose a lot of people who've dealt with trauma in church, and we're, and we're going to get to trauma-informed churches soon, um, might be thinking do I need to disengage from church completely in order to heal from my trauma? Is church bad? Um, is church good? Like how do we find our way through this kind of mire of trauma recovery when some of us have actually sustained trauma in church? How do you advise people approach this tricky question? That is a very tricky I'm question. I'm making work on a Sunday night. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. This is yes. this is honestly another question that I I've grappled with lately, and I've discussed with one of my friends even just the idea is the church inherently harmful, and I I know people that would mm. say 100% yes, and I know people that would say 100% no, um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I it, this might sound a little off topic, but. Like I, oh, no, I'm here for tangents. All good. <laughs> Go for it. Okay. Um, I I love the church, and there is um, a quote. I believe it's by Augustine. I first heard it by the spoken word artist named Levi the poet. Um, mm-hmm. But so he he uses it. I'm not entirely sure if it's an exact quote or just a paraphrase. Yeah. But he says uh, the church is a whore, but she's still my mother. Ah, oh God, that's an amazing quote. Confronting. Yes, and it, it has stuck with me for years, and I find myself at times it comes back to me when I'm feeling frustrated with the church and like what, you know, what do I believe the church should yeah. look like? And as much as it has failed us, in what ways like are we we still drawn to it in the same way? Whether we've had good mothers or bad mothers, we are still have a longing, I think, at least from the Christian perspective, we have that longing to be yeah. like with our mother. Um, and so I, yeah. that, that is a really great question of like what, I think when people are healing from trauma, they need to do whatever they need to do. Um, mm-hmm. That's a huge part of recovering from trauma is restoring that agency. Um, and that's something that I worked hard at for, for years um, during mm-hmm. my undergrad was when I first started doing my, um, my trauma work. And I was at a Bible college. I was working on staff at a church. I was like volunteering at the time at a church. And it was really, really disorienting um, in part just because that's how trauma is. And a lot of times people will say like recovering Mm -hmm. from trauma is almost worse than the actual trauma itself. Yeah. Yeah. I'd I'd concur. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, now I I suppose just while we're kind of sidestepping a little bit, uh, right now, this week in American history is potentially a time where people could be quite traumatised by life, by politics, but also by evangelicalism um, because it really has uh, like this whole, you know, cult 45 kind of thing, this whole Trumpism um, and Christian nationalism. I've, I've seen these terms kind of thrown around the internet quite a bit. Um, following the uh, Washington riots, um, this can be a time when we actually start to point the finger at church and go, you know, it's all bad. Um, but but I agree with you in that. Um, well, I agree with some of your friends um, <laughs> in that. I don't think church is always harmful. I think some churches 
um, are. I think some, but even then I wouldn't say that they are all harmful all the time. I think that there is a benefit, a social benefit when people first sign up even to toxic churches, I reckon. Um, so, you know, in, in this time in history, it's an interesting time to be grappling with the role and benefit of church. Um, yeah. So you've got friends who sit on both ends of the spectrum. Where do you sit in terms of thinking it's good or thinking it's bad? <laughs> I think that whenever you have people, there's going to be the capacity for harm and there's going yeah. to be the capacity yeah. for abuse, whether that's intentionally um, or kind of covertly, you know, maybe yeah. the, the absence of something like that can almost be like a spiritual neglect or an emotional neglect when we get so entrenched in our churches, they become our family, but then there's, you know, there might be abuse or there might be mm-hmm. the absence of that emotional caretaking that we need, um, that even that spiritual caretaking that we need. Um, so I, yeah, I would yeah. agree it, you know, they can be, they can be harmful, but they can also not be. And I think, you know, any, any, I don't think any church is a hundred percent good. And I don't think any church yeah, is a hundred percent bad. Yeah. Now you mentioned before agency. Um, now this is an important word that some people may not be really familiar with in terms of faith or church. Like often we come into church and we kind of hand over our decision-making power or we kind of, uh, we take advice from the pulpit as if it was gospel. Um, what is personal agency and, and how does it apply to church? So personal agency is just being able to act on your own behalf. It's being able to make mm-hmm. informed decisions. And I have noticed that that, that is absent from many churches. Um, I've visited, yeah. I've visited personally churches where I'm just kind of shuffled in and out and, you know, as someone personally takes me to mm-hmm. a seat, um, they will hand me, you know, papers <laughs> as soon as I walk in the door and my sensory overload goes all over the place. Um, yeah. but that's, you know, that's with, that's within the building itself. And then I think giving people the agency, um, to ask questions and to, to determine their own spiritual beliefs. I don't think that many churches do that well to say like you, you own your spirituality, you own your faith. Um, and that can be in any religion. It doesn't just have to be Christianity, but that's where I have the most experience. Um, but to really, yeah, like you have the ability to read and understand scripture and it's historical context. And you don't just have to accept what the pastor says. And it's not a disrespect to the pastor. Being a pastor is hard. No. Um, but it's, it's about like growing as an individual and really you know, restoring that sense of I have control over my life and I yeah. can make choices for myself. And especially with yeah. people who've survived trauma. Yeah. Now, okay, so this is, this is interesting because, like, if we – and you said before that this is all very individual, how people um, process spiritual bypassing, whether they've done it, whether they've been victim of it, um, whether it's both. Um, and a lot of this can kind of be influenced by the way we were raised, the, the family system that we grew up in, the, you know, whether it was very patriarchal or very matriarchal, whether we kind of felt like we raised ourselves um, and our independence became a big asset. So when we, when we come to churches, um, we move from whatever our experience has been to whatever that church culture is. And there's a, there's a meeting that happens there. And there can be any number of ways in which those two worlds combine. Um, so you mentioned the term spiritual integrity before. How does spiritual integrity, how is that the answer to, to spiritual bypassing? And what is the role of emotions 
and faith in that process. I like asking compound questions that clearly, you know, one shouldn't do one first thing on a Monday morning, but uh, <laughs> but anyway, I'll let you do with that what you want. <laughs> Great. I might need help coming back around because when I start talking, sometimes I lose myself. Um, so oh, <laughs> I, well, I think for overcoming spiritual bypassing that you need, you need emotional intelligence and spiritual integrity. So you need them both. Mm-hmm. Um, and emotional intelligence is just the capacity to be aware of and control and then express your own emotions and then also mm-hmm. be able to have like healthy interpersonal relationships, to have empathy. Um, yep. And I think, again, yep. like that get, that's missing from a lot of churches. Like I posted recently, like theology doesn't teach emotional intelligence and that's okay. Yeah. We, we, we shouldn't expect it to. Um, spiritual integrity, that is a term that... Um, I have kind of been playing around with defining. Um, I've seen it defined elsewhere, but maybe for my purposes, um, I define spiritual integrity as taking responsibility for your spiritual beliefs and having regular introspection and then aligning yourself with a spiritual ethic. So how are you practicing your your faith in an ethical manner? Um, And again, all that gets tied back to agency and ownership um, Mm -hmm. because you're not just, you know, at, on a whim acting on your feelings or responding to someone else's um, situation, you know, because sometimes, you know, we, we don't know how to comfort someone, so maybe we offer just a cliche phrase to help them to recover as quickly. Prayers. Yeah, exactly, thoughts and <laughs> prayers. And it's well-intentioned. Yeah. It's well-intentioned, but it comes from a place of just not having that capacity to really yeah. sit with people and meet them where they are. Yes, and in our well-intentioned discomfort, spiritual bypassing can be what we do. Oh, you know, we really need to turn to God in this time. It, it, I think part of my deconstruction, like I mentioned before about anger, um, but I was also uh, the faith movement in church. Um, it kind of happened in, I guess, the 80s and 90s following the charismatic kind of renewal in the Catholic Church over here in Australia at least. Um, but it was this word of faith kind of thing where um, we wouldn't, you know, it was the kind of, we, we'd use blab it and grab it, you know, like just pray it and claim it and name it and claim it and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we learnt to not even utter negative phrases. We would always just say very faith-filled phrases. And I say I say that in air quotes because faith and denial seemed to run hand in hand a little bit, like, oh, I'm not sick. Um, God's healed me and, and people would refuse even to go to the doctor in some more ex- more extreme kind of situations. So that, that faith movement had kind of gone before me um, and I grew up in kind of, you know, 90s and 2000s, I suppose, as a, as a child and young adult, experiencing the flow on effects of that where we didn't know what to do with quote unquote negative emotion. Um, and something that I've heard in, around churches a lot is, um, you know, uh, like, you know, we need to rise up above negative emotion, but, or, or that our thoughts or, or that our feelings don't tell us the truth. Um, something that I've come to learn is that feelings, they're just part of your limbic system. They're just part of your brain processing what has happened. It's actually the thoughts that go along with that that can become the problematic thing feelings in and of themselves are just feelings aren't they I'm sure you can give me a better clinical answer on that but it's it's been an interesting thing to walk through 
deconstructing. Um, so it takes a bit of courage to face up to our own emotions, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. It's terrifying, especially when you grow up in that culture. I grew up similarly to you in this faith, you know, the faith movement and, you know, not name it and claim it kind of mentality. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's terrifying in a couple aspects because, one, you're, you're kind of putting yourself out there for critique or criticism from your own community, whether that's your church community, your friends, or within your family system. Um, mm. And then you also get this other compounding fear that God is disappointed in me for having a natural oh, human yeah. emotion. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you believe in a God, then you believe that he's created your nervous system. Then why would we believe that our emotions and our sensations are wrong or sinful in some way? Right. Right. And this intersects quite interesting with another topic that I've talked about a bit on here and it's purity culture because we're kind of taught that our, our bodies, our desires, our emotions are evil <laughs> um, until such a time as you get married and then, you know, only some of them are acceptable. Um, so there's a lot of things that intersect here in, and can create quite a difficult environment for somebody to sort out their own trauma and emotional intelligence. So tell me a little bit about the work that you've been doing on trauma-informed churches because this must be an absolute juggernaut here. So this is something that I have been toying with the idea of um, being a trauma therapist. I kind of look at everything and think, like, how can this be trauma-informed? Because Mm -hmm. at least here in the United States, even, like, our clinical graduate programs don't teach you a lot about trauma. They don't teach you about how to be trauma-informed um, and really that like the question of trauma-informed care is not like what's wrong with you it's what happened to you and right. I think you know even just taking that statement within the church we that yeah. that could go a long way you know because we it gets so like reduced down to behavior you know sin is just a behavior and we get it mm. we get it you know so twisted of like oh well x y and z you've done this wrong now go repent do this other behavioral response and yeah. that'll make everything better and we really never address the more complex systems of like family dynamics and trauma we just look at wrong things that people have done that was in quotes wrong um yeah (laughs) (laughs) I need to like transfer across to zoom so I can see the amount of times that people use air quotes around (laughs) (laughs) certain things that we say or repeat in churches um and, and I'll, I'll say up front, I, I also don't think the church is all bad. I think it can be a beautiful thing. Um, but I think what you're saying is exactly right, is that we focus so much on behaviour um, and we spiritualise it a little bit, don't we? Like we call behaviour sin and sin is a spiritual condition and, um, you know, that can be quite difficult, can be quite traumatic, I think, for some people to have to feel like they've been pathologised somehow. Um, so what are some of the, what are some of the aspects of church that you believe can be more trauma informed? So the principles of trauma informed care, I guess I'll start there and then um, I'll kind of shoot off maybe as I describe them, how I believe that might look in the church. Um, this is kind of a newer project for me that I'm, I'm hoping to really be able to work with like faith leaders and, um, implement actual policies and not just, not just give them like the ideology but actual principles that they can apply because because statistically 
and I say statistically, but I can't think of the statistic now. Like, pe- if you have people in your church, you have trauma. Um, even yeah. if you look at like the ACE scores, I think um, if you're familiar with like the adverse childhood experiences. No, not so much. No. Oh, okay. Well, I can explain that for a minute. Yeah, great. Yeah. So adverse childhood experiences are, um, there's like a whole list of them and they basically are common experiences that happen in people's childhoods that contribute to um, negative life outcomes later in life. So that that could be anything from like having a parent with a mental illness or living Uh in poverty, um, having a parent that's incarcerated. Those are Mm -hmm. um, kind of examples. There's 10 questions. Um, and, and people can, can Google like ACE scores and Mm kind of calculate their own, um, ACE scores. But the research has found that nearly 64% of adults have at least one of those. Um, but if you have one, there's an 87% chance that you have two or more. And again, that, that increases your risk for chronic illness, um, mental illness, future violence, being a victim of future violence. Um, so it really is like highly impactful in the like the course yeah. of life that people go through. Hi Dallas. Says hello. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um yeah, it can be very impactful in in the um the various different kind of stages of life and 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 things in life that people will go through. That is really interesting. Um in Australia, we I guess we don't hear of those kind of statistics as often, but they'd be very much the same. Um, we we kind of uh, we use like men, like the the percentage of people who will suffer from a mental illness. But I have actually heard of the adverse child um, experiences now that you mention it. If you then come into church, there can be this um, this tendency to. I guess, look for, um, you know, an answer that's going to erase all of these, um, all of these negative experiences that we're just going to find Jesus and then nothing bad will happen. And then when something does, we have reduced kind of capacity to deal with that. Um, would that be a correct assumption? Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Um, your, your ability, trauma is anything that overwhelms your ability to cope, um, to where like psychologically, you're just not able to handle that and that manifests, you know, in our different trauma responses. Um, and then you come into a church setting and you're, like you said, you're expecting, um, maybe something like a pill to fix it all. And that's usually leads to some disillusionment, um, because, or there, it leads to maybe not processing the trauma in the way that you need to, because you, enter into this cycle of spiritual bypassing where you yep. jump from yep. spiritual idea to spiritual practice to avoid actually mm-hmm. doing the work that you need to do and it's hard work. Okay, that's really interesting to jump from a spiritual idea to a spiritual practice to avoid the work that you need to be doing. That is wow. <laughs> um, there's Because I know a lot of people who are very conscientious, very devout Christians and yet um there's big traumas that just seem like they're lurking there like you just don't go near that area because it's going to blow up if you do um and that's led to a lot of frustration um in their either in their work walk with god or you know we can use faith as avoidance can't we we can use spiritual practice as avoidance um and yet there's a healthy place for spirituality but it's not as a band-aid to cover up the work that you should be doing 
how do we find the balance here? So <laughs> that is a great question. Um, finding the balance, um, I, I'm hoping, would be through, one, increasing you know, emotional intelligence and spiritual integrity within the church, mm-hmm. and then also implementing these trauma-informed practices um, mm-hmm. to, because the other component of trauma-informed care is resisting re-traumatization. And um, mm-hmm. as we were talking, it kind of reminded me um, of another just idea that I've had about um, testimony and how, mm-hmm. like, in, in trauma therapy, we are very, like, almost like sacred with someone's trauma narrative or the story of yeah. like, the details of what it has happened to them. Um, Cause we don't want to re-traumatize them by having them share too many details or sharing too soon um, when they don't have the psychological um, capacity to handle doing that. Cause that can just yes. reinforce those trauma responses. And uh, I'm not sure about you, but I know I grew up in a church that had, you know, nights devoted just for people sharing their testimony. And sometimes, like, I was also yeah. also a part of a church that was very evangelistic. And so it would be like, you know, that morning they yeah. met someone on the street that had, you know, a drug addiction. They're 12 hours sober, and they have them sharing their testimony that they've converted. <laughs> and, oh, every, yeah. <laughs> and everyone viewed it as a win, um, which, again, sidetrack, I, I have a problem with evangelism that doesn't result in discipleship. Um, there, there are so many uh, mass, you know, evangelistic movements where people, you get these convert numbers and then there's absolutely no, no follow through. Um, yeah. But going back to testimony, I think um, that can be like a spiritual practice. I know like before I did my trauma work, I would summarize my testimony in like five sentences. And I was like, yeah, this is, I've overcome this, this, and this. And I hadn't, like, (laughs) I was maybe more behaviorally compliant. Like, I met church expectations, but, like, I hadn't overcome anything. But I thought I did because I stopped doing, you know, at 15, I was self-harming and using drugs and had, like, disordered eating. And then I, you know, started, I grew up in the church, but I really, like, made a decision for myself. And for years, probably until I went to college, I, I was like, yeah, this is my testimony. This is so great. Let me you know, share this and inspire others. And then everything kind of fell apart for me when I actually got to, yeah. got to college. Cause I realized like, Oh, like all of that really means nothing if I haven't done this work to heal myself. Yeah. Cause behavioral compliance and healing are two very different things, aren't they? Yeah. Um, how do we know we're healed? <laughs> <laughs> I wish you could see my face. Um, I think, <laughs> <laughs> Um, healing again, I'm just going to go back because I believe in agency. That's going to look differently for everybody. But I think when, I think healing just comes simply like when things just don't feel as heavy, um, you know, whatever that may be when it just feels less heavy and you can, you can talk about it, you know, with a sense of like levity instead of like, it's over, like over you looming over you. Um, and even like in humor, like there are times when I, you know, I have a bit of dark humor, and I can... oh, I'm a huge fan of dark humor. Yeah. It is survival, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, you mentioned earlier on, uh, in just uh, it was a fleeting mention of, of kind of post-traumatic stress versus post-traumatic growth. Um, this is a very interesting thing in, in light of all of this. Um, I actually, I have a do- diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, now, 
for me, healing doesn't mean never having a PTS episode. Um, for me, healing means being able to be at peace with myself and all of the things that I've gone through. It means being able to be kind to myself when I realize that I'm having a PTS episode. Um, so like previously when I was in church, I would feel a great deal of shame and there would be that shame avoidance, shame avoidance, hypervigilance, kind of you're looking out for the triggers so that you don't have a PTS episode and you don't have to feel the feelings of shame for having gone through abuse or trauma and this kind of cycle of hypervigilance avoidance um, you know all of that kind of continues now I'm a lot more at peace with this with the situation I know what happened I can talk about what happened I can talk about trauma every now and then um, I, I realize that I'm acting out like some of those survival mechanisms and instead of beating myself up I go oh that's what's happening I need a nap right now or I need a quiet a bit of quiet time for me that's healing for me, I don't expect myself to be fully cured um, and to never have another night terror or to never have a PTS episode. Um, but I, I note the decreased frequency with those episodes and I go, good work, girl. <laughs> and I, I note the, the, the kindness I allow myself or I extend to myself during those times and I see that as healing. Um, healing is a journey, not a destination, I think. Um, how, how did you kind of mark those, those moments of, or those kind of milestones within your own healing? So for me, there was the aspect of having to mark like maybe my behavioral responses, like you mentioned, like having like night terrors or nightmares, um, having panic attacks. I marked, yep. I noticed a decrease in those. Um, but then mm-hmm. beyond that, I also had to recognize like the increase in, the things that I wanted in my life, like actually feeling a sense of peace, um, being able to have like intimate relationships, having close relationships. Um, I always had like friendships. Um, I I think I'm pretty personable, but my own personal ability to feel close to people, because I always for a long time had the perception that other people felt closer to me than I did to them. And I didn't quite understand why it was like I was interacting with people behind a glass wall like it felt like we were in the same room but I was not there Um, (laughs) this this makes sense to me yeah (laughs) Um, and then even just like my capacity to take risk um, it's so like interesting I recently I moved well it's probably it's been over a year now I moved back to um, my hometown after living um, in a couple of different states over the years and yeah I I feel like I feel different in the spaces where I used to feel really small and unimportant and I can walk into yeah. those areas with like a sense of like confidence and knowing who I am because trauma really like messes with your self-perception. Like you have no idea right. who you are. Like mm-hmm. you only kind of know who you are in relation to this terrible thing that happened yeah. and you start to realize like, okay, I can put this trauma or traumas in their place and I don't have to be, um, you know, I don't have to have them like be attached to the hip to them. Like I can be independent of them. Um, and they're there. Um, I I think another thing that came to mind as you were talking and kind of describing like, what is it like to be healed? 
um, there's a trauma treatment it's called internal family systems theory yes yes um, I've heard I, of it but I don't know much about it talk me through it so it um, it's a really incredible kind of newer um, framework for treating trauma and the idea is that we all have these internal parts um, that operate much like a family system um, and if you know anything about mm-hmm. any kind of system you change one part and the whole system is changed and so oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so with internal family systems um, he kind of breaks it down into um, you have yourself which is kind of like your in like other theories you might say like it's your wise mind it's your wisest self um, yeah. then you have two types of protectors you have your um, managers and you have your firefighters mm-hmm. um, your managers are kind of doing um, proactive work to help you to stay calm or stay regulated um, yep. and that may not even be the best word to say regulated, but to keep maybe the more intense emotions from coming up. Um, so that can, yep. that can be like people pleasing, being like overly right. self-critical, um, you know, things mm-hmm. in, in that realm. And then you have your firefighters and they're the reactive protectors. So whenever yep. like, a trauma memory is triggered or maybe old feelings of trauma come up, you like binge drink or you overeat or you gamble or, you you know, you do, you do those things that are are more reactive. Yeah. Um, which again, I, when I, when I conceptualize like what sin is like, I'm like, man, it's so much just a response to like pain in the world. Um, and we, we get it so wrong. Um, but then the third aspect, or I guess it's really the fourth is our exiles. And those are the parts Mm. of us that really hold those trauma memories or those trauma beliefs. Um, like, terror and Mm. loneliness and those are the things that we want to do at all like we want to avoid them at all costs naturally yeah and so within IFS like with you really should work with a really trained therapist because it does when you're working with trauma um but you you work to integrate those parts and like you come to appreciate each part for how they serve you Mm. and how they've helped you function and um in the world every day you know even like if you're highly critical of yourself, it's, you know, maybe it's because you value, you know, good work and you want to make sure yeah. that you're doing a good job and you can come at it from a place of compassion, which goes back to that self. Yeah. Um, so the guy who invented it, his yeah. name, his name is Dr. Richard Schwartz and he identified yeah. eight C's of self-leadership. So he like the idea is that you'd be led from yourself instead of these other parts. And th- that's mm. that's what I was reminded of um, when we were talking. And those eight C's are confidence, calmness, creativity, clarity, curiosity, courage, compassion, and connectedness. Wow. And so for me, that's like, that's healing. Like when you're able to tap into those aspects of self, that is, yeah. that's when you're operating out of a place of healing and wholeness instead of yeah. reactivity or, you know, extreme... Yeah. emotional yes. yeah yeah now okay that's this is this is really interesting and, and by the way I'm so impressed that you could rattle off eight C's just you know I googled them oh, oh, okay <laughs> now I feel a little bit better about myself because I often talk about like the seven mountain dominionism for example and I'm like oh yeah the seven mountains of dominionism are blah 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 blah, blah. and I always get to number six and I'm like what the heck is the seventh one or yeah. the five senses can never remember the fifth and you know they're so easy anyway yeah (laughs) it's like I get to the last one I'm just like yeah freeze up um 
so what you're talking about here about the internal family systems, um, when I started my postgrad this year, I realized that one of my coping mechanisms is rationalization um, because I'm a nerd and I'm kind of proud of it. But rationalization can also mean that we don't do the emotional work because we're busy doing the thinky thinky work. <laughs> um, but I guess in the internal family systems kind of scenario, you'd be like, actually, that's a strength to be able to do that, but it needs to be offset by the ability to actually kind of process the emotions as well. Um, so we don't need to necessarily hate all of our coping mechanisms. We can appreciate them and um, and put them in their rightful place, I suppose. I don't know whether that works at all with IFS because I don't know anything about it, but, you know, it just popped into my mind, so I thought I'd mention it. That, that goes back to building resiliency, like being able to, um, you know, some people say like resiliency especially when, when you relate it back to trauma is being able to like find maybe gratitude for like what the trauma taught you or strengths that you gained from it. I kind of call bullshit on that. I think there, I think there is some, yeah. some truth to that, but I don't think that yeah. you have to like be grateful for your trauma. Um, Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I, I, I really did a lot of work with, um, again, one of my really great therapists because I, I just struggled so much, partly with feeling just very incongruent. Like I felt that yeah. who I projected into the world was not who I was internally. Um, I had a lot of mm -hmm. internalized shame and just the thought like I am, I'm really bad and people don't know that because I project such a good image. And mm -hmm. my therapist at first, she was like, yeah. but yeah. you're not even doing anything bad. I'm like, I don't have to do anything to be bad. Like I am bad. Um, yeah. And yeah. so as I work through a lot of just unpacking all of that, um, I said something along the lines of like, I don't want, I don't want my trauma to get like any credit. Like I, cause it, yeah. it kind of goes back to spiritual bypassing. Cause I, I told yeah, him, I remember yeah. telling him explicitly, like, I don't, I don't want to believe in a God that has to get glory from my trauma. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah I've got a problem with that. Yeah. Yes. Like I, I really wrestle with that. And I, I don't like that. And he, I can't remember exactly what else I said along those lines, but he basically mm -hmm. said like you survive the trauma because of the skills that you already have, or like your innate, like personal qualities, yeah. like that strength was already there and that's how yeah. you survive. Like it didn't get there because of the trauma. It was already there. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I think, I think growth and healing and resiliency is like acknowledging that you, you are equipped with the ability to survive like with or without the trauma. Yeah. And you don't have to be grateful for the trauma. You can just say, yeah, I'm, like I'm tough. Yep. Yeah, yep. I'm tough or I'm smart or I, yep. Yeah, I'm creative in getting out of scenarios. Um, again, I laugh at something that's really not funny, but, um, I, I find it really interesting what you say there. I remember, um, just before my diagnosis of PTSD, I was sent for some pastoral counseling and the pastor told me that I needed to find gratefulness for my abuser. Um, and I, it took me years to be able to call bullshit on that, but that right there is spiritual bypassing. Um, and, and, you know, it's present when we, when we bypass emotions and, and call them unacceptable or unbiblical, but it's also there when people give us bad advice. Um, and forgiveness is a tricky one, a tricky area, I think, because it can be spiritual bypassing. It can also be healthy. To forgive people I think but only I think this is my hot take and I'm, I'm keen to hear yours um, I think forgiveness is overplayed in church I think acceptance that something happened 
um, is different from forgiving someone. I don't think we need to be able to be best friends with an abuser. I don't think we need to have to work with them in order to have forgiven them. But I also think that sometimes forgiveness gets confused for kind of whitewashing what happened or kind of pressuring victims to forget um, or to uh, sweep abuse under the rug. So hot take, what is a healthy approach to forgiveness? <laughs> oh man, I think forgiveness is aspirational. I don't, I don't even know that I, I think everybody reaches a place of forgiveness and I think that that is yeah. okay. Um, but I, I think it's some, it's something that at everyone's, at some point in everyone's life that they have to be honest about though, like sit down and look at how is, yeah. what does unforgiveness look like in their life? Especially if you have grown up in the church, I think that gets presented to you in a lot of ways. You're told like, oh, you still yeah. feel upset about this or you don't trust this person yeah. anymore. You haven't forgiven. And exactly, yeah. exactly what you said, like it gets, it's a, mean of, a means of sometimes sweeping things under the rug and not holding people accountable. Um, usually not holding people in power accountable. Um, and again, I think it's also like people just don't know how to, how to cope, um, with something traumatic happening. Like, um, that's a part of like going back to trauma informed churches. Like I would love to help like counsel leadership on like, how how do you address abuse within your church? Because it's going to happen. Um, and like that is uncomfortable. Like it's hard, it's hard to admit that that happened, but forgiveness is not, it's not the first line of defense. Like forgiveness is like way down the line of things in someone's healing journey. Yeah. And often I think I almost wish that we'd remove the word forgiveness from the equation, to be quite honest, because what you, what you rattled off before those four C's, you know, you're talking about calmness, connectedness, like you're talking about compassion. These, these things are more helpful. Um, If you're unable to, like if you're unable to feel any sort of calmness when you think about your trauma, then there's more work to do. Um, if you're unable to, um, I think, be connected um, to your own mind or to the feelings and sensations in your own body or, or to, to reality in any given moment, then um, then there's more work to do. But I don't think, I, I think if we're thinking about forgiveness, we can be oriented too much around the abuser or the abuse. Um, and it can keep us Kind of connected to that, <laughs> to that trauma, and and not allow us, I think, the 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 ability to to move on or to process things well. So yeah, I kind of wish that we'd we'd get rid of the the word forgiveness from the trauma vernacular and the word sin. I think there'd be two things to it'd be nice to kind of do away with. <laughs> what do you reckon? <laughs> yeah, they they get so heavily emphasized anytime there's any kind of trauma or crisis or just any like grievance it's all tied mm-hmm. back to like oh well you know you, you're sinning but then but then at the same time go and forgive them for their sin yeah and it's like wait there's there's no accountability there's no like yeah restoration or like ensuring safety for the the victim yeah. it all becomes about like well we want to keep up an appearance of a united you know, it is, churches are very much yeah. like families. Like we want to keep up a picture of like a united yeah. front where everybody gets along and yeah. like unrealistic expectations don't do anything but lead to disappointment. Yep, exactly. So setting those expectations in a bit of a better place, that that's part of, is that some sort of part of spiritual integrity? Like 
um, setting our expectations a little bit better, being able to integrate the role of emotions in a person's life is that part of it are we kind of circled away from what is spiritual integrity and kind of yeah no that's that's all a part of it um a part of kind of creating your because i believe like you need to kind of have your own spiritual ethics so once you identify like what your values are and then your ethics like how do you apply those values you also have to set up like your spiritual boundaries and like the church is notoriously bad at boundaries um, and that can, yeah, that can yeah. be in any capacity, whether that's, you know, I think boundaries are a part of, you know, again, creating, creating trauma because like survivors yeah. need to be able to say like, I know exactly who I am in relation to you. And like the church gets mm-hmm. very enmeshed. Um, I like setting, yeah. <laughs> setting like spiritual boundaries. I think it makes people kind of uncomfortable, but especially if you grew up in a charismatic yeah. movement, um, like you kind of understand yeah. Uh, the idea of like giving someone a word or like prophesying or giving them like a word of faith mm-hmm. or a word of knowledge. And the term that we, yeah. use, that we've used here is like, Oh man, it feels like you're reading my mail. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just like, why would we ever create a culture around making someone feel violated? Like, yes. <laughs> even if you really believe you have like a word of encouragement or like, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, like ask even a boundary can just be like I'm gonna ask someone permission before I try to impart anything onto them, and then I'm gonna yeah. respect that they can say no, because I think yeah. in the church it's like no we have to um, be very hyper spiritual all the time and we have to be open to what the Holy yeah. Spirit is doing and if the Holy Spirit tells <laughs> me to tell you something I have to do it and you have to receive it and be obedient or you yes. know X Y and Z and like that's so unhealthy, because a lot of times yeah. like. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I get worked up about it. No, no, no. You (laughs) go. No, go. A lot of times, what were you saying? A lot of times we're, we're just wrong, you know, or we're misguided and we can believe really powerfully about something or have an idea of how we think someone should act. Or Mm -hmm. I think, I think we, we also downplay our own like intuition a lot. Like we, we're all trying to make sense of the world all the time. And so yeah, we yeah. we pick up on things like we can tell when someone's having a bad day. We don't have to say like, "Hey, the Holy Spirit told me that you're really struggling." Yeah. Like we can just say, "Hey, I noticed that you're sad," and we don't we don't teach people that it's okay to. We just we teach people that it's, you don't question the spiritual, and I'm. But then at the same yeah. time, people will use like, like I wasn't allowed to watch Harry Potter growing up. Um, oh, Harry Potter. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> and, but people will be like, oh, you have to test the spirits. You have to see, like, is this is this true? Mm-hmm. Is this of God? But then when it gets, like, applied back to them, they're like, oh, no, but don't question me. Oh, gosh. I had a shame shelf in my um, in my house where I'd, like, hide the books that I wasn't allowed to read. <laughs> and Harry Potter was on the shame shelf, um, you know, yes. I never, but I actually find it to be quite allegorical. <laughs> You're right. I said I never even tried to, like, hide it. I was like, no, I won't do it. I literally, it was, like, last year that I read and watched Harry Potter. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, look, it's it's good stuff, um, I'll say. But, you know, I wish, I wish J.K. Rowling would let go of that moment and kind of move on, but that's yeah. another thing. Um, so, so now in America, it's an interesting moment to be talking about trauma and it's an interesting moment to be talking about churches. As we move into 2021, what are some key, um, key pointers that you'd like to give people in terms of recognizing trauma and working through it in a healthy way as we all recover from what has been just a, just an incredible, just 
cosmic shit show? I would say first, just prioritize everybody's safety, whether that's physically or emotionally, over being like right or solving a problem. Um, yeah. And I, that's that's even difficult for for me because I try to be a problem solver, and I try to rush in yes. and say like, oh, I have I have this advice that might be helpful. Um, yeah. And recognizing like, no, I need to create an atmosphere where people are safe because you can't, like you can't heal in any capacity until you're out of harm's way. And I think mm-hmm. right now with a pandemic and like here in the U.S. having, you know, everything yeah. that's going on, like, I, I don't know that we're in the safe zone yet. So trying to create that yeah. where you can. Um, and then just recognizing that what is Something may not be traumatic for you, but it could be traumatic for someone else. Um, I think just that generally, but then, you know, we get into, you know, racial relations and racial justice and things like that. And I think, you know, I'm in, I'm just South of Memphis, Tennessee. So I'm right in like the South and where I'm at, it's very much like I haven't heard very many people at all condemning what happened at the Capitol um, but I heard a lot of wow. condemnation for Black Lives Matter rallies and yeah, just a total lack, wow. a lack of empathy and understanding. Um, yeah. Mm. I think um, it's probably also an important moment for self-compassion as well. Like I've heard people kind of putting a bit of pressure on themselves to achieve during 2020 or to, to do better. Um, but, but sometimes survival is the best we can do um and finding safety in our mental physical emotional state like safety in all of those realms is is important in a moment like this so self-compassion I think is important and also therapy Mm -hmm. I think is important (laughs) yeah so therapy if you can afford therapy if it's accessible to you like going to therapy is probably one of the like most beneficial things that you can do for your mental health and just being able to like process because we are in this collective trauma, it can be very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. You know, people are very mindful of not wanting to unload on someone else right now. Like most people I feel mm-hmm. like, um, yes. like I had a phone call the other day and they text me beforehand and we're like, Hey, if you're overwhelmed about, you know, life because of what happened at the Capitol, like I, I understand we don't have to talk. And I was like, I really appreciate like mm. offering, like letting someone set a boundary. Like, it, you know, she gave me the opportunity yeah. to say yes or no. Um, yeah. And do you know what? I've got a friend who, who always does that. She like almost always checks in and goes, are you okay to talk about blah right now? And she'll give me the chance to say no. And at first I, I, I like said, well, oh, you never have to ask. But then I realized that's actually a really respectful and beautiful thing to, to be able to do for somebody is to check in to see where their capacity is first. Um, because some days, are great and others we can feel just weighed down by the world um so yeah that's a really beautiful kind of yeah that's a a good point to check in with people first I like that so where can people I I see that you've got courses coming out and I feel like we're only just kind of skipping the surface of two really important topics um in terms of spiritual bypassing and in terms of trauma-informed churches it is true that trauma is going to touch people while they're going to our churches in some cases it's going to be because of what has happened in our churches. So this is actually a really confronting thing for faith leaders, but it's also a really beautiful thing for faith leaders to be able to know um, some really good skills in terms of trauma-informed care and how to get people the care and support they need. Um, 
So you've got some huge content coming out. Where can people access it and how can they support your projects? Yeah, so the first thing that they can do um, is they can follow me on Instagram at Welcome to the Process. And I'm also on Facebook under that same name. Um, and then I have a website mm-hmm. that is welcome to the process.org. And that's kind of where all of the information is being pushed. Um, once my courses are live and available, um, I'll be making that announcement on Instagram. And uh, people will be Lovely. able, yeah, people will be able to go to the website and enroll in those courses. Um, and the way that I've designed them is I want them to be um, self-paced so you can go through the material all on your own. But then I've also created yeah. independent um, like Facebook groups for each course so that if you want to be a part yeah. of a community that's going through those courses, you can you know, request to join that group and be able to yeah. like, interact with other people that are maybe at different places or in the same place of the same journey as you. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's absolutely wonderful. I've, you posted on one of your stories, some of the topics that you're going to be going into in one of those courses. And I thought, man, this is good stuff because um, I, I don't think that, um, that the church is done. I think the church needs to evolve and we need to be better at trauma informed practices and we need to be better at um, integrating the whole person and, and not just kind of, you know, belittling or downplaying the role of the body and the role of the emotions and the mind in living out our best life. So there's some really amazing kind of resources in there. And I'm very thankful for for, uh, for you coming on the podcast and being the first interview of 2021. I think Welcome to the Process is really, <laughs> I think it's ironic. It's so laden with meaning um, I think as a society, we're recovering from a big year, but it's it's becoming really obvious that um, the the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve didn't erase all of the all of the issues that the world has been grappling with. So, I think we need to accept that it's a process of healing. It's a process of getting back to quote unquote normal. Um, and I I like that you're reminding us of that. So thank you, Jess Hugenberg. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm very grateful for your encouragement and just the opportunity to chat with you today. It was a really great conversation. Yes, I thought so too. And thank you, Dallas, the doggy, for your input <laughs> in the uh, conversation as well. Very vocal. Um, yeah, this is Unchurchable and I'm Kit Kennedy. I'll see you next time.